Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Good morning. It's good to be with you in this way. I'm looking forward to next week. Next week will be an in-person service and looking forward to seeing a bunch of you guys here. We'll give you some reminders throughout the week just so that you don't forget next week is in-person. Then we'll take two weeks virtual and the following week is Easter. We'll be in-person and everything from Easter forward will be in-person each week and I am looking forward to seeing all of you guys each week. Today we begin a new series and Uh, We're heading towards Easter, and so I keep thinking about how do we set ourselves up? How do we prepare ourselves for Easter? What do we need to be talking about to get our hearts and our minds and our spirits in the right place as Easter is fast approaching? And so we're starting a new series called Uncommon God, Uncommon Us. And here's what I believe. I'll just tell you right out of the gate what I believe and what I'm hoping to prove. I believe that we serve an uncommon God, that there are so many incredible things that we can find in scripture that tell us how our God is set apart from any other God that may have been believed in at any point in time. And I believe because our God is uncommon, then we also must be uncommon. Um, We're going to take several weeks to look through the story of who God says he is. We're gonna go to scripture. We're gonna look at a variety of different places and learn some stuff about who God is, who he says he is. So, what if you had some really great news, but you didn't share it? Think back to the end of World War II. World War II ended in 1945. And part of World War II was fought in and on an island called the Philippines. And when World War II ended, there were soldiers who were so deep in the jungle that they never got the message that the war was over. And in fact, there was a Japanese soldier who didn't find out that World War II was over until 1974. It ended in 1945, but the word didn't reach him until 1974. So there was a various times in the years after the war ended that he took pot shots at people. He hid from people. He thought for sure that they were still at war. And it took his commander, someone who had long since retired, who was no longer in the army, coming to the island to convince him that the enemies weren't trying to pull one over on him. 1974. The Emancipation Proclamation is something that Abraham Lincoln delivered in order to free the slaves. We we fought a civil war, and at the end of the war, it was declared that the slaves were free all over the United States. And yet, for decades, until the early 1900s, there were plantations in the South who still had slaves because slaves on plantations depended on their owners to tell them the news. The news didn't reach them. Think about having the greatest news you can imagine, but not telling it to anybody. The greatest news you can imagine is out there, but it doesn't have any effect on your life. Some of you guys know that I am a member over at Reams Fire Company, and in the firehouse there is a a quote that's written down, and it says, our success is measured by our response. Our success is measured by our response. And you think about that for a volunteer fire company, that makes a lot of sense because literally their success is measured by volunteers showing up to respond to accidents and fires. It's a volunteer who goes into a burning building to try and put out the fire or rescue someone. It's a volunteer who gets into the middle of a car accident to try and get somebody out of the car. It's their response that makes them successful. And I think there's not so big a difference between church and a fire company, honestly. Our success is measured by our response. I think there's a lie that we have believed for a lot of years and maybe it's something that we heard somewhere. We just, we just made an assumption. 
Maybe it's something that's been pushed into us over many years of growing up in the church, and that, that lie is that you need to be perfect to be successful. King David is a pretty prominent figure throughout Scripture. He wrote a lot of the Psalms we have. He's a, a major figure in the history of God's people, and King David's nickname is a man after God's own heart. That's how he goes down in history. King David was an adulterer. He slept with another man's wife. He's a murderer. When that woman became pregnant, in order to cover it up, he killed the husband. He's somebody that sometimes disobeyed God. He's somebody that uh, made some poor decisions, let's say that. And yet, he is called a man after God's own heart. It's not perfection that makes King David a man after God's own heart. It's his response. Every time King David makes a mistake, every time he goes down a wrong path, King David gets on his knees in prayer. He apologizes. He confesses his sin. And whatever the Lord delivers to him as the response to his sin, whether that is some sort of a punishment or it's some kind of gracious act, David accepts it. It's his response that makes him successful. Our success is measured by our response in church, in our relationship with Jesus. And so my hope for all of us is that we would simply respond well to the series we're about to walk into. We had a simple statement at the end of every sermon in the last series. I don't have that this time. But if I had to have a simple statement that summed up the whole series, it would be that one. Our success is measured by our response. So let's jump in this morning. Luke 6.46 says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? You find that piece of scripture in Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. He says that to the disciples and the crowd that has gathered around him. He says it to the leaders and the teachers, to any people who called him Lord, Messiah, teacher, rabbi. He says to them, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? To call someone Lord is to assign authority to them over you. So why would you call someone Lord, but ignore the authority that that implies in your life? And the fact of the matter is that there are those who deny the existence of God and they deny the authority of God because they don't believe he exists. And actually, that makes sense to me. But what's worse is there are those who call Jesus Lord and ignore the authority of God by the way they choose to live. So in this series, we're going to do a couple of things. Each week, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, sometimes Old Testament, sometimes New Testament, maybe both. And then we're going to talk about cause and effect. We're going to make some observations about what that Scripture tells us, about who God is, about his heart, about his desire. And then based on God's heart and his desire, we're going to talk about what effect it should probably have on us. So simply... Old Testament, New Testament, cause and effect. That's our outline every day of this series. Now, some of you guys are looking at me and saying, cause and effect, what are you talking about? Or maybe it sounds a little familiar from middle school or elementary school. And I just want to think back. Think back to a science class that you had where a science teacher sat down with you and showed you something and said, what caused that? So they gave you a picture of a flooded roadway, and they said, okay, what caused this? And, oh, it must have rained really hard or a pipe broke in the road. Okay, good, good, that's the cause. The effect is the flooded roadway. Johnny has five cavities. What causes that? Well, Johnny should brush his teeth more, or Johnny should not eat so much candy, right? That's the cause, the effect is the cavities. Betty's arm is in a cast, why? Well, Betty fell off a trampoline, or Betty got kicked in a soccer game. That's the cause, the effect is the arm and the cast. We can observe the effects of something. And because of that, we can often logically conclude what causes it. So let's start at the other end. Let's start with a cause. When I first came up here, you might have seen that I turned on a burner with some water on it. 
There's a burner under the pot that adds heat to the water that is in the pot. Adding heat is the cause. What's the effect? The water is now boiling. If I removed heat from water, the water would freeze. Cause and effect. Now, I'm going to turn this off. And I want you to think about this passage of Scripture from 1 John 4.19. If you followed along during our midweek devotional series, you'll know that we just did 1 John at the end of last year. And we just read this passage near the end. 1 John 4.19 says this, We love because he first loved us. So what's the effect that's observable? What's the, let me show that, let me re-say that. What is the effect that should be observable? That we love others, right? Okay. People who call Jesus Lord, people who say that they follow Jesus, people who devote their life to Jesus, people that call themselves Christians should be able to see They love people around them. And what's the cause of that in this passage? We love because he first loved us. The love of God for us is a cause, and the effect that it should have is that we love one another. We love the people around us. We love our neighbor. We love our enemy. We love the people around us, our brothers and our sisters. So, you and I are not water. We are people made in the image of God, given free choice. The water doesn't have a choice that it boils or that it freezes. If I add the heat or I take the heat away, the water has no choice. It freezes or it boils. You have choice. So what does it say when we call ourselves followers of Jesus? We say, Jesus is Lord. And yet... It has no effect on us. I'm asking the same question that Jesus asks in Luke 6. Why do you call Jesus Lord, but you don't do what he says? In this series, we're talking about cause and effect each week. We're going to learn something about who God is. We're going to see that as a cause. And we want to talk about the effect that should have on our life. And remember... Our success is not measured by perfection. It's measured by our response. So, we are going to start in the very beginning today. So, if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. And this is the time that no matter how well you know your Bible, we all know where Genesis is. It's in the very beginning. And since we're going to Genesis 1, you find your table of contents, go like one or two pages, you're right there. Genesis 1, verse 1 is where we're starting, okay? Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And we're going to stop there. And first, I'm going to say this. Really easy to get stuck in the question, is this literal or is it not? Really easy to get into arguments over whether old earth, young earth, is it literal, is it a, what is, okay, here's what I want you to do. Take a deep breath and recognize that whatever you believe about the literalism in Genesis 1 is not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is your relationship with Jesus Christ, which means it's totally possible that we have a variety of opinions on Genesis 1 in our room, and we can all be brothers and sisters in Christ still. So take a deep breath. Now check this out. We have already met the Trinity in the first few verses in the Bible. God is there, the Spirit is there, and we know that Jesus and the Father are one. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the perfect impression of who God is. When the angel comes to tell Joseph and Mary that Jesus is going to be the Messiah, he says, name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God and Jesus are one, and the Holy Spirit is is there, right there. And in the very beginning, with a single word, God creates. 
In the silence before all things are created, when it's just the Spirit and God hovering over the waters, that sound, that word, boy, it might have sounded like a big bang. I happen to believe that a big bang requires a big banger and that mind existed before matter. But God looks back over his creation and he says, it's good. That's the creation story that we grew up with. If you went to church or you went to VBS or something like that, that's what we grew up with. I want to tell you a couple other creation stories because in, in Genesis, uh, in the day of Moses, in the day of Joseph, there's all sorts of other people groups that God's people interact with, right? They're always going around and talking to other people, going to different countries. Think about Abraham and all the travels that he made. He went through a variety of different countries. If you remember back to our series last year, his wife was taken captive by the Egyptians. Lots of different other people groups out there. So what did they believe about this, the creation of the world? Well, let's start with the Babylonians. Not too long ago, we talked about Jonah. Remember, Jonah had to go to the Ninevites to give a message from God. The Ninevites, Nineveh, was the capital of the Babylonian Empire. If you're hanging out with us right now in our Wednesday devotional time, then you might know that um, Lamentations is the book that describes the fall of Judah. And Babylon comes in and takes a bunch of people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and takes them captive, okay? Babylon is a big deal in the ancient world. Babylon believed that in the beginning of time, there was swirling water. The water that swirled divided into salt water and fresh water. The fresh water became Apsu, and the salt water became Tiamat. Apsu and Tiamat together gave birth to a whole bunch of gods. But those little kid gods, they were so loud and annoying. Apsu wanted to just kill them. They gave him a headache. He wanted to kill them. But the little gods found out, and they rebelled. And a champion of the little gods rose up. His name was Marduk, and Marduk killed Apsu. Now, of course, Apsu's mate, Freshwater, was very upset. And so Tiamat went after Marduk and tried to kill Marduk. But Marduk prevailed and killed Tiamat. And out of the corpse of this great god, Marduk made the world. That's how the Babylonians believed that the world came to be. The Sumerians believed something a little bit different. They believed that there was a group of seven great gods and a whole bunch of lesser gods. And the lesser gods, they had to do all the work so the seven great gods could kick back and do whatever they wanted. Well, the lesser gods got upset that they had to do all the work and they decided to rebel. So they decided that they were going to attack the greater gods, but the greater gods got wind of it. And they said, hold on, let's come up with a a peaceful way to do this. And so they decided to create mankind as slaves to do all the work so that everybody can kick back. The Egyptians, they have their own account. But unfortunately, the Egyptians' account is so explicit that I can't share it at church. So I'm not going to share that one with you. I'm just going to let you know they have their own account. And uh, the God that does most of the creating, his name is Atum. And Atum actually is said to create himself. So in our account, before the beginning of time, We have the Spirit of God hovering over the deep, the nothing, the darkness. Somehow the Egyptian God goes from nothing to make himself out of whatever. I don't quite understand it. I can't make logical sense of how that worked, but that's the Egyptians. And and let's talk about the Greeks, because the Greeks are probably the ones that we're most familiar with. The Greeks would have been folks that Paul would have dealt with, but we know a little bit about Greek mythology. Uh, Their creation story went like this. In the beginning, there was only darkness. And you're thinking, you know what? It sounds like a Bible a little bit. All right. Um, In the darkness, there was Nyx. That sounds like my name. I just realized that. There was Nyx, a big black bird with great big wings in the middle of the darkness. And now you're sure we're not in the Bible. Nyx and the wind got together and laid a gigantic golden egg. And the black bird, Nyx, sat on that egg for ages and ages and ages. And finally, the egg hatched. And out of the egg came the god of love, Eros, which is where we get the word erotic. And half of the shell rose up and became the sky. The other half of the shell that did not rise up became the earth. And Eros made the top half of the shell and the bottom half of the shell, the sky and the earth, fall in love. And they had 
children. The sky and the earth had children that we call titans. So maybe you've heard the name Kronos. He was a titan. He was like the titan. Kronos had a bunch of children like Poseidon and Zeus and Harry, uh, Hera and Ares and, and all these other people. And, uh, and Kronos got really annoyed with all of his children. So he ate them. So they were essentially in prison. Except for the youngest of his children, whose name was Zeus. And Zeus found a way to free all of his siblings, and all of them together attacked the Titans and locked them up forever. And so then Zeus was the main god in charge, and with his brothers and sisters and family members, these lesser gods, they put stars in the sky and life on the earth. Now, you've probably heard more than you ever wanted to hear about different creation stories of different people groups in the ancient Near East. But did you notice how different the story of Genesis is from all of those? I mean, in all of those, the world is created out of incredible violence or, or, or the death or murder of another god. I mean, in the one account, it's, it's their corpse that creates the world. And of course, the Egyptian account is just explicit. So not necessarily violent, but overly sexualized. The Genesis account, Genesis account is incredibly different. Let's keep reading in Genesis. If you go to Genesis chapter 2, so I don't know if you have to flip a page or if it's on the same page. Chapter 2, verse 5. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... And no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Did you know that in ancient times, a priest would find someone to carve an image? So they'd find a carpenter or a stonemason, and they would take a piece of wood or a piece of stone, and they would create an image of a god. And they would take that image, and they would put it in the right temple that belonged to that god. And, and this generally holds true across the board for Babylonians, Egyptians, Greeks. You know, they had different temples assigned to different gods. And, and all of these cultures were polytheistic, which means they had lots of gods, not just a single god. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We have one god. So these priests would take this carved image, they'd put it in the right temple, and people would come to worship those gods by going to that temple, and they would bow down before that carved image, and they would worship. And, and they, didn't, they weren't worshiping the image, they believed that the God they were worshiping inhabited the image. And the way that that worked was that the priests held all the power. The priests were the ones who decided where the temple would go. They would decide who could get into the temple, who could worship in the temple. And these images, these carven images, they're just carved images until the priests have something called a spiration ceremony like inspiration, spiration. And the priests would gather around this carved image and they would say their stuff or do their chant, whatever it is, and then together they would breathe onto the carved image. And in breathing onto the carved image, the priest would somehow put the God into the carved image. So then the priests had the power even to determine if God was even in the image. Okay? Priests in most of these cultures were the gatekeeper at the temple. Their job was to make sure only the right people got into the temple. And the right people sometimes were defined by being pure. Sometimes they were defined by having enough money. Sometimes they were defined by having the right stuff for the appropriate sacrifice. But the priests were like security guards to keep the riffraff out. In our Christian, in our Jewish, Hebrew, following of Yahweh, priests were supposed to be people who introduced us to God. They were the ones that opened the door for people to interact with God, not stood in the way. And that's an important difference. If you look in the Genesis story that we just read, there isn't a priest that makes a carved image. There isn't a priest that has a spiration ceremony. 
Actually, it's God himself that creates the image. God grabs soil and dirt and mud and clay, and he forms mankind in his image. And it's God himself who then breathes the breath of life into the image he had created. Not a priest into a stone figure. God himself into mankind. God breathed his life into us. How was mankind created for the Babylonians? Mankind was created so that the gods could rest. Man was supposed to do the menial and trivial work. How was mankind created for the Sumerians? No, created out of the dead body of a god. They took the blood of the dead god and some clay, mixed it together, and they made man. And the Sumerian god's main goal was to control mankind. The Greeks might know this story. Greeks create mankind, and one of their gods, Prometheus, gives them a gift. And because he does, he's sentenced to well, death, but not really death, torture for the rest of his life. Zeus, when they create woman, Zeus gives her the gift of curiosity and a box full of horrors and sits back and watches what happens when Pandora opens her, her box. In the Greek world, the gods looked at mankind as play toys. Now think about the world of Genesis, of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We aren't God's play toys. We're very much God's partners. We're his beloved creation. We're made in the image of him. He breathes his breath and his life into us. Let's keep reading. Genesis 2, starting at verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh, then the Lord God made a woman from the ribs he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. I have a few things to say on this. God first says, it's not good for man to be alone. And I think it's easy for us to read it like, oh, everybody should get married. Um, and in fact, I would say, that's something I've even heard in church. But that's not the point. It's not about everybody should get married. What, what God is saying here is that mankind is created for relationship. Mankind's not meant to be an island. You're not meant to be all by yourself. We are called and created for community with one another. We're made to be in relationship. You are not an island. You are not meant to be alone. And that's something that church this community that's been created that follows after Jesus Christ is something that we can offer, community, relationship. You're not alone, you have us, we are together. So to find a suitable partner for Adam, God looks over all that he's created, over all the animals and the birds, looking for a partner for Adam, and he can't kind of find one. And I, I think it's a little funny. I remember years and years ago, Rob Bell talked about this moment where you know, Adam is standing there, and, and God, is, you know, God is with him, and then he's just, okay, we're going to bring all the animals out, and you can name them, you know? And so kind of like God somehow creates this little parade of animals in front of Adam. And you can tell, like at the beginning of the day, when the first animal comes along, and Adam's like, duck-billed platypus. And, and, and God is probably like, oh, very good. That's very creative. Great job. Great job. Great job. And then the animal goes on. The next one comes. And, and you can tell as the day wears on that Adam is getting more tired. And there's an animal. And he goes, dog. And God goes, well, that's just God backwards. But all right, we'll give it to you, okay? And, and then, you know, the dog goes. And Adam's like, cat. And God goes, wait a second. I didn't make those, right? Um, 
I, I, that's, a, that's a funny way to picture it, but I, I love that picture of this in special relationship with God and Adam there naming the animals together, but that's what we're told. Whatever the name is that Adam comes up with, that's the name of the animal, okay? God is just like, look, be creative, man. Just come up with a name. Whatever that name is, that's what sticks. And so they look through everything, and they can't quite find a partner suitable for Adam, the name Adam kind of comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? Adam. Adam is actually a word, um, Adam. We say Adam in the English way, and, but the word is Adam. And it's uh, translated as Adam in certain places and man in other places and mankind in other places. It, it, it uses, it's for everything, Adam. The root of Adam is Adama. And Adama means dirt, Earth. And so in some ways, Adam's name is really Earthman or Earthling, one who comes from the soil. That's Adam. Now this is important because mankind is named for the earth that we're created from. We watch as God gives this Earthman, this Adam, the earth to steward, animals to name, Birds to name, animals to care for, the world to care for. What we're reading is that God's created an important connection between the earth and man. And in everything he's created, there's not a suitable partner for him. Partner is the Hebrew word azer, azer. And it's in woman that a suitable helper for Adam is found. Man is given woman, his partner. Is Azer. Now here's the thing. I feel strongly about this, so I'm going to try and not get overly passionate. <laughs> um, helper is not meant to be understood as less valuable. It's not meant to be understood as an assistant. It's not meant to be understood as a subordinate. The main thrust of the passages in Genesis, the creation account, when we see man and woman together for the first time, the main thrust of it is unity. It's creation. It's creativity. I'm tired of living in a world, and I'm tired of being a part of a worldwide church that seems to insist that women are somehow less than men. It's unfair, it's unbiblical, and it's unfounded. If you are looking at your brother or sister excuse me, at your sister in Christ as somehow less valuable than you because of her gender, this is not a Christian perspective. Listen to this description of the word azer, okay? Remember, God is looking for an azer, a partner for Adam, okay? Woman is the partner that is found. What does azer mean? When God says, let's find you an azer, what is he saying? Here you go. The word azer in the Old Testament is closely connected with military language. God is the helper, God is the azer of the nation of Israel, their sword and shield and deliverer. He is his people's ever-present rescuer from trouble. He's better than armies, better than chariots and horses. He keeps watch like a guard over his people, and with his strong arm, he overthrows their enemies. That's the kind of help Genesis describes as coming from their azer, one who is their helper. And the azer who is woman is made in his image, as is man. Azer, woman, is not meant to be a subordinate and is certainly not a lesser creation. Azer is help from a place of strength. Helper from a place of strength. It's a partner whose gifts and strengths make up for your weakness. That is how we need to see our wives and our mothers and our sisters and our daughters. They complement us because where we're weak, they're strong. Azer means helper from a place of strength. Now, every week in this series, when we finish up looking at a passage of Scripture, we're going to talk about some of our observations, cause and effect, 
all right? Observations about our uncommon God this morning and see what effect they should have on us. So the first one that we come to when we look at this passage is the one that I brushed over a little bit, and that is literal or not. Do we take this literally or do we not? Is Genesis 1, the creation account, meant to be literal? Is it a poem? And here's what I'm gonna say. If you're making that matter, you're missing the point. If you see it as literal, it gives you this absolutely unbelievable, incredible picture of who God is. If you see it as a poem, and it is written in a poetic form, and so you don't see it as literal, it gives you this unbelievable, incredible picture about who God is. And when you look at it, if you take a step back and get out of the argument of whether it's literal or it's not literal, suddenly you get this awesome picture of who God is by looking at it both ways rather than being like, well, it's this and it's this and I'm gonna argue with anybody till I'm blue in the face that it's this thing. Stop, stand back, take a look at the whole picture and get this awesome picture of who our God is. Sometimes we get so bogged down in the stuff that doesn't matter and what we should be is we should be a people who are so focused on Jesus, so focused on God the Father that we see the truth behind what is being written rather than getting bogged down. Here's the honest truth. Like facts, science, that, that wasn't a thing when Genesis 1 was written. The people that wrote Genesis down, they, the culture didn't even have an idea of facts and science. If you were to take everything literal in the beginning of the Bible and you just count the years from Adam to Moses, and let's just say we'll go with the main theory that Moses wrote Genesis. There's 430 years before this creation account was ever written down. 430 years of fathers telling their sons and mothers telling their daughters and family members telling each other about the story about how God created the world. And so you have to ask yourself, what was the point of them passing that story down from generation upon generation? Was it so that you and I could sit here in 2021 and pick apart these insane little details and get into an argument over whether this is literal or not, or is the important thing the truth of the entire scope of the passage? So, in that, take a look at John, chap, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. I, I love this because the Apostle John, a follower of Jesus, somebody who walked with Jesus, who was taught by Jesus, I mean, who's right there, first-person account with Jesus, in the very beginning of his Gospel, he writes a version of the account of creation. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. What is the truth? Can we be a people a people who are so devoted to God and Jesus that we see the truth of the passage. What matters here is that we understand that we have an incredibly creative God that wants a deep relationship with mankind, mankind that he created in his image, mankind that he breathed life into, mankind that he, he pushed to be creative as well. Name this animal, name this animal. Mankind that he cares so much about, he wanted to find a partner for that man, and so he created out of man a woman, a perfect azer, a perfect partner, a perfect complement to to his weakness with her strength and to her weakness with his strength. He gave them the world to care for and steward. This is the important thrust. It's unity, it's creativity, it's togetherness, it's community. That's the point of Genesis. And clearly, as John writes down, John who sat at the feet of Jesus, John who put his head against the chest of Jesus so he could hear the heartbeat of Jesus, John writes down his account of the creation story and we clearly see in the beginning was God and the word was with him. And God created all things, and there's nothing here today that God didn't create. And he put his light into his creation. This is what we need to be about. This is what we need to be unified in. And so if you let yourself be bogged down in this ongoing argument about literal or not, I'm sorry, my friends, we're missing the point. The cause is creation. The effect is that we worship the creator. 
Here's my second one. Creation of the earth. Now, think about every other ancient Near Eastern creation story that was. The world is created through violence and bloodshed. The Genesis account rejects violence and bloodshed for creativity and goodness. Over and over and over, God creates, and then he stands back, he looks at his creation and says, hmm, that's good. And the next day, he creates some more, and he goes, hmm, that's good. And then he creates woman, and he goes, hmm, that's very good. I mean, God over and over and over says, this is good. He is creative, and he's focused on goodness. And so God gives the earth to mankind to steward and care for, to subdue and use and live on. You might remember at the end of Jesus's, well, not life, but before he goes back to heaven, before he ascends, he gives a great commission. He tells his followers to go out into the world to tell the world about who he is, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We call that the Great Commission, and it's really essential. It's given to all people who call themselves Christians, given to all people who call themselves followers of Jesus. But if we go back to Genesis, there is another great commission, and we might call it the original commission. And it's not given just to people who follow Jesus, it's given to all of mankind. Followers of Jesus are not given to all of mankind. It's in Genesis 1, it starts at verse 28. It says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seeds in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every plant for food. And it was so. And you're with me so far. You're like, yeah, that's, that's the Bible. That's scripture. I'm familiar with that. Yeah, he tells us to do that. Okay. If I go over to my sister-in-law and brother-in-law's house and my, my oldest nephew, we decide we're going to play a game, so my oldest nephew, we're going to say, you're in charge of all your nieces and nephews, okay? I might say something to him like, I put you in charge over all the children, male and female, you are in charge. You are the steward of all the toys. Take good care of them. Keep them in good order until we return, right? I wouldn't actually say that, but let's just put it in like good Genesis language. My expectation of my oldest nephew is that he keeps all of the children safe, that he takes good care of the toys, um, and if there's a big enough problem that he needs help, he asks for help. If he takes me leaving in, him in charge as a free pass to break all the toys, scatter his, nieces, uh, his, uh, his cousins all around the neighborhood, and then burn down the house, we have a problem because that's not what I meant when I said I'm leaving you in charge. See, God gave us this whole big, wide earth to care for. We're burning down the house in so many ways. We know enough now that things should change. My grandfather is, actually I shouldn't say I know how old he is, I have no idea. He was born in 1938, but I can't do math fast enough to tell you how old he is. My grandfather is the one who taught me how important conservation of the earth is. He's a hunter, he's an outdoorsman. I grew up going hunting with him all the time. When, he, when I was younger, he would tell me stories that when he was younger, in the 40s, early 50s, if he went hunting in the woods and he took with him lunch, maybe it was food in a can, when they were done with the food, in the can, they would take the can and they would find a tree with a nice Y in it and they would toss it up in the tree. That's how they got rid of trash. They didn't know any better. The same man who did that when he was young is the same man who taught me about how important it is to take care of the earth as a hunter now. We know more now. We need to take care of what we've been given. God was creative in his creation of this place. It's time that you and I be creative in our care for God's creation. If the cause is his care for creation, then the effect is our care of it. That's what I should have said. You, you are well aware of Jesus' command to love your neighbor. Part of loving your neighbor is making sure that your neighbor has clean water and fresh air and good soil to grow their food in.
if all you do is pollute the air and pollute the earth, you're not really loving your neighbor. Your neighbor can't live. We need to do a better job. Number three is the creation of mankind. What was common to all the other ancient Near East creation myths was to see mankind as slaves or to play tricks on them, to constantly put them in no-win situations. They're created to be used and abused by the gods so the gods could relax or laugh. What was uncommon was for a story about God who created mankind to enjoy his creation. What was uncommon was a story to arise and be told from people group to people group about a God that's out there, a God, the highest God above all gods. His name is is Yahweh. He created mankind because he, he loves them, cares for them, and wants to be in relationship with them. He wants them to enjoy and take care of the world. And believe this or not, that God created mankind in his image, and he breathed his spirit into them. You know, what's more is so many creation accounts, other creation accounts have a garden in them, just like ours has a garden in it. The thing is that every other creation account with a garden, the garden is there to keep people out. The garden is there to separate gods from man. It's a place for the gods only, no mankind. And yet in Genesis, we see God with obvious care creating a garden for man to be in with him. Where every other ancient Near East creation myth talked about separation, we have a God who wants to bring us into it. A God who creates a whole great big wide world for his mankind to enjoy and a garden for them to come back to with a tree of life in it that they can eat from. That's uncommon. There's nothing else like it that's out there. No other creation myth that's like it that's out there. If the cause and effect, if the cause is God making mankind in his image, of breathing his spirit and his breath into them, of desiring to be in relationship with them, then the effect on us must be honoring the very thing that he is. My fellow man, whether I like him or not, okay, do you hear that? Whether I like him or not, is made in the image of God. My fellow man, whether I like him or not, has the breath of God breathed into him. And my fellow man, whether I like him or not, God desires a relationship with him. So if I destroy my fellow man, then I'm destroying part of the image of God, part of the breath of God, and I'm ending any chance for that man to have relationship with God. We're created for one another. We're called and created for community. We're created to love each other. And you know what loving each other is? Love ascribes value to another at cost to yourself. Love ascribes value to another at cost to yourself. Sometimes that comes at a great cost to ourselves. There is no greater love than that I lay my life down for my brother. Love costs. And we must remember that as we seek to love our neighbor, our neighbor is created in the image of God. God wants a relationship with them. And that should impact how you treat them, how you talk about them when no one's there. Lastly, man and woman. I think I've said most of what I want to say on this. If the cause and effect, if the cause is that God creates woman to be azer for man, that partner from a place of strength, then the effect has to be, hear me, men that are listening online right now that are, are even here, the effect must be men that we need to do a much better job at the way we treat women. Our Jesus-centered marriages, our Jesus-centered friendships and families should be the example for everyone else that does not have Jesus in their life. If you see your wife, if you see your sister, your daughter, your girlfriend as somehow less than you, less smart, 
less valuable, less worthy, less able, less than you, then you don't have a Jesus-centered, God-centered relationship. It's not Christian. That perspective is not. Because woman is partner for a man, Azer, partner from a place of strength. Woman was made to be complementary to man. One whose gifting makes up for man's weakness. We are together. We are equal. Together, created in the image of God. <laughs> to see your sister and your wife, your daughter, your girlfriend that way is to scratch the surface of how God meant for you to see them. It's to scratch the surface of how God himself sees them. And honestly, that should be our desire. I'm not saying that following Jesus is always easy. I don't ever want you to think that I think that. I recognize that there are places in Scripture where Jesus says things like, love your enemy. That's really hard. So I'm not pretending like that's easy. But what we should be desiring in our heart of hearts, whether we're successful or not at it, is that we see our enemy the way Jesus does. What we should be desiring in our heart of hearts is that we see our, our mothers and our daughters and our wives and our sisters as Jesus sees them. You and I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just our human nature. We're a little headstrong. Maybe it's our culture, I'm not sure. We like our way. We don't like to be wrong. And whatever way we've been given from the time we were young is the way that we often continue on. It's hard to break out of the belief systems that you've been given by your elders, your parents, your grandparents. Our desire should not be to continue on belief systems that we've been handed. Our desire should be to see the world and the people that God has created in the way that God sees them. That should be the effect. We love because he first loved us. So tell me, convince me how you can be one that says you are loved by God, but then you hate the people around you. I know. You'd say, I don't hate anyone. Well, if I was to just observe what you say and what you write, sure looks like you hate a whole lot of people sometimes. We love because he first loved us. Clearly, the world should be able to look at us as Christians, as Jesus followers, as people who are centered on God and say, my goodness, they're different. My goodness, that's an uncommon God. That's an uncommon follower. So let me close with this. Our God is uncommon. May it be that in his name, we are uncommon too. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.